from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A nominee for a Pentagon job the Senate wouldn't confirm in July will replace James Anderson as acting undersecretary of defense for policy. Brigadier General Anthony Tata, U.S. Army retired, made inflammatory comments about former President Obama that caused both Republicans and Democrats on the Senate Armed Services Committee to oppose his nomination for the same job over the summer. Defense One reports Tata can take the job because he's been a first assistant for 90 days. Weapon systems are the big winner and research and development the big loser in the Senate Appropriations Committee's defense budget mark. The committee added $1.7 billion to the F-35 account, $1.4 billion to the Navy's shipbuilding and conversion account. To breaking defense reports, the Senate bill cuts $2.1 billion from research, development, test and evaluation spending. The Marine Corps is putting its first shipment of amphibious combat vehicles to the test. Marine Corps photos show six of the new vehicles at their official introduction Wednesday at Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center 29 Palms in California. Task and Purpose reports they're the first new amphibious vehicles for the Corps since the Vietnam War. Coast Guard is in the space business. It's partnering with the Department of Homeland Security and SpaceX to launch two CUBE satellites into space. Michael Sinclair is a federal executive fellow at the Brookings Institution, writing about the uh, space and the Coast Guard. His views are his own and not those of the Department of Defense, the Coast Guard, or the U.S. government. Michael, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this piece, uh, and this is what attracted my attention, it's fair to say that outer space and the Coast Guard are two terms on their face that don't seem to have much in common. What do they have in common, Michael? Good morning, Francis. First, let me say thank you very much for having me today um, on this on this Veterans Day. I really appreciate you being here and the interest in the, the article that you wrote. Um, to answer your question, <sighs> Most people don't have a really good understanding of the scope of responsibility that the Coast Guard has. They would be shocked to learn that the Coast Guard is actually an international organization, and uh, along with the great responsibilities it has here at home in the United States. So to think of the Coast Guard and space is one step beyond one step farther than most people think about the, the, the role of the Coast Guard. But in, in fact, the Coast Guard has a long history of relying on space-based technologies to help execute its missions. You write uh, about three lenses the Coast Guard uh, should view space through. The first of those, and you pose these as rhetorical questions, I'll direct them to you. How can the service best capitalize on cheap, ready access to space to facilitate its missions? What does that look like, Michael? Well, so the Coast Guard has um, 11 statutory missions. It's got a broad scope of responsibility, and it covers basically the the entire gambit of the of maritime government. It doesn't really much matter what you're talking about. If you're talking about something that occurs aboard a vessel in which the, the United States can exert jurisdiction or waters in which the United States can exert jurisdiction, the Coast Guard has a responsibility for executing it. Drug interdiction, aids and navigation, ports and waterways, uh, security, uh, search and rescue, living marine resources, marine safety, defense readiness, law enforcement, all, all matter of missions. And space, um, access to space through 
in satellite technology and enhanced communications and uh, enhanced uh, detection and surveillance would, would help the Coast Guard facilitate all of these uh, 11 statutory missions. You allude to the second lens in the beginning of your piece when you talk about the launch that I mentioned in conjunction with DHS and SpaceX. The second one is how do commercial space efforts interact with the maritime industry and the maritime domain? Is that nexus becoming tighter and tighter as time goes on, Michael? Yeah, it sure is, Francis, um, both through two aspects, through how the broader maritime industry uses space for things like um, automated identification systems and uh, GPS, how they rely on that for, for scheduling and uh, delivering goods to the intersection of commercial space and the maritime. SpaceX, for example, um, does a lot of activity in the maritime. They launch and recover their rockets from, um, from the maritime. Uh, they launch and they recover pieces of their rocket using ships with big nets um, so there's a there's an increasing interaction between commercial space and the maritime that is only going to further increase as more commercial space gets underway. The third lens uh, that you're proposing to look through is how the Coast Guard can, as part of the joint force, assist the Space Force in executing the latter's own responsibility. There is a perception, at least from the outside, I know it's not true, uh, in, in, all the way through the inside of the joint force. But there's a perception on the outside that the Coast Guard is not always thought of as part of the joint force. Does, this, does the fact that the Space Force is newly standing up its mission, writing uh, documents, uh, doctrine documents and so on, provide an opportunity for the Coast Guard to begin sort of a new relationship with a new, with a new branch? It does, but I would push back a little bit on the contention that the Coast Guard isn't well thought of um, as part of the joint force. We have Coast Guard cutters and Coast Guard personnel all around the world right now supporting com combatant commanders. Um, we have uh, six patrol boats in the Arabian Gulf. We frequently operate in the Pacific. We will increasingly frequently operate in the Pacific. Um, we, we are good partners with our with our sisters and brothers in arms in the in the, the department of defense um but you're right it does having a new having a new um armed force does provide some some opportunities to further um reiterate that uh, the coast guard's role within um the joint force michael sinclair thank you very much for joining me it's great to have you on the program Francis, thank you. The pleasure is mine. You have a great day. Up next, formalizing reform efforts at the Department of Defense. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how DOD can track the money it's saving better. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department reports recent reform efforts have saved the Pentagon $37 billion. But that number may not be the right number. Elizabeth Field is Director for Defense and Capabilities and Management Issues at GAO. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I cite that $37 uh, billion number from the work that you have done on this. And you write that uh, those, uh, those you found those reported savings from its reform effort uh, to better align resources are largely reflected in its budget materials. There's a but there, though, isn't there, Elizabeth? 
There is, but I should stop and say that seeing those cost savings reflected in the budget justification materials is a huge step forward for the department. That's something that we haven't seen in past years. And so being able to validate that those figures were in fact reflected in the budget was important to acknowledge. So let me start there. Uh, there is a but though, as you said, a, a couple of ones. First, when we looked at the underlying analysis for those cost savings figures, there just wasn't a lot there. And it's important when you're developing cost estimates to take into account things like whether inflation uh, should be considered, whether there are opportunity costs like the startup costs for implementing a reform initiative. So, so that's an issue. Um, another issue is that we found many of the initiatives that we selected to review as part of this $37 billion in savings were not really the result of reform efforts. So when we think of reform, we're talking about changing fundamentally the way that the department does business so that in the long term the department is operating more efficiently but we found that some of the savings were related to things like delays and contracts so for example delays in the navy's ship to shore connector which is a type of landing craft or delay of construction of health facilities. Well, if we're gonna construct those facilities or get those landing crafts in a few years, we're still gonna realize those costs. Is that why that matters, Elizabeth? Because qualify, classifying it in that way doesn't really count? Well, I mean, it, it counts in the sense that for the time being, these resources can be put to other needs. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea here is to shift resources from some more of the back office functions of the department to really supporting the warfighter. And so that that did happen. Um, but to suggest that this was the result of reform entirely uh, is not quite right. And as you know, GAO has long been pushing for the department to improve its approach to business transformation. It's one of our high risk areas. And so we would really like to see the department have more refinement around how it talks about reform and the savings that it realizes from reform. All right, about the first but that you cited a moment ago, Elizabeth, um, you write it this way, GAO was unable to determine the quality of the analysis that led to DOD's savings decisions. What did you not have that you would have liked to have had to be able to make those determinations? So when we looked at the documentation that they had for these savings, we asked them just to give us, give us whatever they had. We often would get only one or two sentences that again, just sort of described the initiative rather than explained uh, how they came to that figure. So we would wanna see something, for example, uh, like what are some of the alternatives that were considered to implement this initiative? How did they actually get to this figure? Uh, and as I mentioned before, things like whether they took into account opportunity costs. So um, we, we really need more than just one or two sentences. You, uh, you get in this work to one of the debates that's probably happening as we speak on Capitol Hill regarding the National Defense Authorization Act uh, discussions, and that is, there's a, you write this, there's a risk that collaboration may not be sustained in light of any organizational changes that Congress or DOD may make. It sounds like what you're getting at there is the potential dissolution of the office of the chief management officer. Am I reading too much between the lines, Elizabeth? No, I think you're spot on. And that is something that we are watching very closely. So uh, both the House and the Senate versions of the FY21 National Defense Authorization Act would eliminate the chief management officer position. Uh, there has also been bipartisan support for the position uh, in recent months that has said, you know, this is this is not a good idea. Uh, at GAO, we have long advocated for the department 
to have a very senior official, could be a chief management officer, could be a second deputy secretary of defense, that would be another option, but someone who really has the authority, the resources, the clearly defined roles and responsibilities to be able to transform the department's business operations in a meaningful way again coming back to that true definition of reform so in this review we found that current chief management officer has been working very well uh, with the comptroller as well as the director of cape cost assessment and, and program evaluation and that's all really positive but if the position goes away there could be a lot of uh, turmoil within the department we know that leadership changes often set reform efforts back, so we are concerned about that. Um, we just have a moment left. The recommendations you make basically encompass addressing the things that we talked about here. What do you suggest the, the department do to preserve, if not the actual structure of the CMO, the collaboration that you think is important as you just outlined? Yeah, that was one of our most important recommendations in this report. So right now, as I mentioned, they have good uh, procedures in place to coordinate. They have ways of sharing information, ways of tracking progress. They know what their respective roles and responsibilities are, but none of that is written down. So formalizing that in written documents that can be sustained over years, regardless of what leadership changes might occur, is something that we really think the department needs to do. And I should note that the department and the chief management officer in particular concurred with all of our recommendations. Elizabeth Field, thank you very much for joining me again. It's great to have you back. Thanks so much. Up next, the Real Ready Reserve Force. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how changes in the reserve structure can lead to a better, more strategic force. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Reserve makes up about 20% of the branch's total organized units. The national defense strategy calls for a greater investment in talent for the great power competition and a more strategic reserve force could be one way to approach that solution. Jackie Schneider is a Hoover fellow at Stanford University, a non-resident fellow at the Naval War College, writing about the reserve force in War on the Rocks. Jackie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You start this piece by giving a brief history of the all-volunteer force, General Abrams rolling it out in the 1970s, and then you write, it's time to move beyond the total force. Why so, Jackie? Yeah, you know, our total force has become the most operationally ready reserve in the United States history. We have an extraordinarily competent reserve that is deployed all over the world, um, side by side with their active duty uh, peers. Um, but in the quest for an operationally ready reserve, we've sacrificed a lot of the civilian parts of the civilian airmen, soldier, sailor, and Marine. Um, and unfortunately, it's left us in a situation where if we're in pure competition, we're not able to utilize the reserves in the way that we could to really leverage the unique expertise that you, are, you get from that civilian experience. You propose three things in this work to complement the operationally focused reserve. And the first is expanding the workforce. How do you mean? Yeah, so the idea here is to look beyond kind of the um, active duty guard positions, which are more like the full-time uh, reserve positions. 
and actually think about expanding what we call um, the IRR, the Individual Ready Reserve. So the Individual Ready Reserve are people who are sitting on standby and they're not generally called up um, unless there's a time of extreme crisis or contingency. Uh, we don't use these people hardly at all, um, but we can actually expand the use of them, allowing another flexible way to bring people in and out of military service without big breaks in service. So the Air Force does this, um, this participating um, individual ready reserve program through what they call the Category E programs. So they have, for example, Air Force Academy liaison officers, Civil Air Patrol, and some folks who work on emergency procedures. And these folks work for basically no pay. They just work for retirement only, and they keep minimally qualified. But then when there are issues that come up or contingencies or crises, you can call them up really quickly. So we've only used this category of reservists really, really minimally. And I really think that we can tap into this um, kind of more flexible uh, category of reservists to extend our workforce beyond the congressionally mandated end states of what we call the selected reserve or the cell res. The second item that you propose is optimizing work for reservists. Again, how so? Yeah, so what I like to say there, my little like bumper sticker there, is we need to think about for reservists, it's people to projects, not butts to billets. So in the, the quest to emulate the active duty, the reserves has created a manpower and personnel structure that is tied very closely to billets. And these billets are tied to military operations specialties or in the Air Force, um, Air Force specialty codes. And these are kind of the, the divisions of labor within the military, you know, and aircraft mechanic, pilot, intelligence officer, comms officer. Um, but a lot of times these um, MOSs or AFSCs don't really reflect the, the skill set that we're looking for in some of these emerging categories like software developers or network engineers or even cybersecurity specialists. So um, by only looking at billets, we're going to put people in kind of things that they're not quite optimized for. Um, but instead, if we think about projects, then we build what looks to be more like a gig economy within the reserves. And if you think about the project instead of the billet, then you're optimizing these reservists' time. And that's another thing that we found when we look at talent is that you know millennials, they're not as concerned with compensation as they are with doing work that's really um, motivating. And we want to spend more of our reservist time doing work that's really motivating and less time doing um, computer-based training or, you know, the sitting in a, in a chair on a drill weekend. Um, so the idea is to be more flexible about work. And there are initiatives that DIU is working on this thing called Gig Eagle. And then the Air Force and the Space Force have organizational concepts called the bullpen that are meant to create this more gig-type work atmosphere for reservists. The third item is one with which you have personal experience, building a database of strategic skills and reservist contact information. How would that work or how has it worked in your experience? Yeah, so, you know, funny enough, there is not a database of all these reservists with all their civilian skills. We have like base knowledge about where people work, but we don't understand all the latent talent that is just sitting within our reserve force. So, um, my, this, you know, COVID is a really good example of this. So my husband is a former F-16 pilot. Um, he has like, a, he's a, used to be a project manager. Uh, he's got an MBA and he, he was flying for United Airlines when COVID hit. 
So when COVID hit, he thought, well, I really want to serve. I want to desperately serve. And at the time, he was a Category E reservist, an Air Force Academy liaison officer. It was like 19 years in. So he was just kind of sitting it out out here in Silicon Valley. And he went to DIU and he said, you know, I'm a Category E reservist. You can put me on orders immediately and I can work for you within weeks. And that's what happened. So within weeks, the um, the Defense Innovation Unit here in Mountain View was able to put my husband on full-time active duty orders. Um, and he's been working on a project to integrate artificial intelligence um, with bio wearables in order to detect COVID potentially 48 hours before symptoms show. Uh, so it's a really good example of somebody who was just kind of like, living his best civilian life, had all these skills. The Air Force didn't know about these skills. They knew he was a F-16 pilot. But when COVID hit, he was able to you know, immediately be leveraged. And what we want to do is actually build that database so we can do that in a more responsive way. Right now, we just reach out to kind of the bro reserve network and, and ask people, do can you can you commit? Can you help? We don't know. Um, and instead, building this database will allow us to kind of have a back and forth relationship and really build that gig economy. And I've actually started that after the um, after the article went out. I started a private LinkedIn for Air Force Reserve talent. We have over a hundred people and um, with really diverse and interesting experience already. So trying to build a informal database of those skills and and capabilities. Jackie, thank you very much for joining me. It's a great piece, and I appreciate you talking about it with me. Thanks for having me on. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. Up next, a special look at Open Season, sponsored by GEHA on the Government Matters Thought Leadership Network. If you're watching on the American Forces Network, you can watch Open Season on demand at govmatters.tv. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News, Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.